0: Hi, this is Sarah. If you like this episode of Let's Talk About Sects, you can listen to my audiobook, Do As I Say, How Cults Control, Why We Join Them, and What They Teach Us About Bullying, Abuse, and Coercion. The audiobook will be available on Audible, Apple Books, Google, and Kobo from the 28th of June. A link is in the show notes. Before we get started, I want to welcome Audio-Technica as presenting partner for this season of Let's Talk About Sects. I've been working with their equipment from the very beginning of the show, and like many podcasters, started with an AT2020 USB mic, which has served me very well. The kind folks at Audio-Technica upgraded me to a BP40, which they tell me is also perfect for screaming into if you're in a heavy metal band. If you're not a podcaster, they have some really great options like noise-canceling headphones for travel, some cool wireless headphones, or if you love to listen to vinyl like I do, they've got very nice turntables as well. Find out more at audio-technica.com.au. In 1996, journalist Madeline Bunting wrote for The Guardian UK, quote, Most of the 130,000 Buddhists in this country are in the caring professions, or are academics, or are part of an ex hippie culture. They are trusting, idealistic, and naive. They thought Buddhism was immune to the fanaticism and hypocrisy which riddles all religions. The controversy surrounding the new Kadampa tradition is shattering illusions that Buddhism was the one fail safe religion. Twenty years later, clinical psychologist Dr. Michelle Haslam joined the NKT under that very same illusion one that she now feels obliged to help truly shatter herself. Welcome to Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. Before we continue, a content warning. This podcast deals with issues that some people may find disturbing, related to emotional abuse and controlling behaviours. Please use your discretion as to whether this will be suitable for you and those around you who may be listening too. I also need to add that the views and opinions expressed in this episode include those personal to Dr Michelle Haslam, Who shared her experiences with me? While I have no reason to believe that she would be telling anything other than her truth, her views are her own and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of the makers of this podcast. Lobsang Chaponpa was born in 1931 either on the 4th of June or the 19th of July, and either in Yangchotang, eastern Tibet, or in Nish Nishgatsi, in southern Tibet. You're going to hear further conflicting information about the man who would become known as Kelsang Gyatso, because it's very difficult to find any details about his early life and studies outside of his own sources, so independent verification is tricky. Former New Kadampa Tradition members Tenzin Peljo and Carol McQuire. Put together the most detailed biography outside of NKT sources that I could find, though there are many within the NKT who would dispute their research. So all I can really say is take what you hear with a grain of salt. Lobsang Chaponpa was born to Lang Chung and Norbu Chuyulpa as one of four children with one brother and two sisters. At the age of eight, Lobsang joined the Nagamring Jampaling monastery in Shigatse. He says that he memorized the 50-page Medicine Buddha Sutra, and it's claimed that he was ordained that year in 1939. But this may have been a novice or getzel ordination, as full ordination is only available after turning 20. He later attended the Tashi Lunpo Monastery. Buddhism was first introduced into Tibet from India by invitation from King Trisong Detsen in the 8th century, and Tibetan Buddhism became the major religion of the country. According to the BBC, at one time, one in six Tibetan men was thought to be a monk. There are four main schools of Tibetan Buddhism, Nyingma, Kagyu, Sakya and Gelug, which have their own teachers, spiritual leaders or lamas and monasteries. The monasteries that Lobsang attended were of the Gelug school, which is also known as the New Kadam, based on a revival of the Kadam school which had died out in the 14th century. The Dalai Lama is the spiritual leader of the Gelug School, but since the 5th Dalai Lama, also known as the Great Fifth, the role became a unifier across the various religions and regions of Tibet. The current leader is His Holiness the 14th Dalai Lama, whose approach is one of inclusivity and who has received teachings from Lamas of all of the schools. This inclusive approach is not embraced by all within the Gelug School, Tibetan Buddhism emphasizes the impermanence of life, and one of the most well-read books from the tradition is known as the Book of the Dead, though its real name translates to Great Liberation Through Hearing During the Intermediate. This text is about passing through death and into rebirth, with the state between death and rebirth known as Bardo. Supernatural beings and deities, both kind and vengeful, play a big role in Tibetan Buddhism. China had granted Tibet autonomous rule over Chinese sovereignty in 1950, after the Communist Party came to power. And in spite of some promising meetings between the Dalai Lama and Mao Zedong, with the Dalai Lama's assertion that, quote, I felt sure, as I still do, that it would be possible to work out a synthesis of Buddhist and pure Marxist doctrines. Tibet's hopes of an agreement with the People's Republic of China were dashed when Mao finally told the Dalai Lama that, religion is poison. In 1959, the Tibetan uprising demanding independence was crushed by the Chinese, and the Tibetan Buddhist religion has been practised in exile ever since, with the Dalai Lama residing in India as a refugee. Prior to the 1959 Tibetan exodus, Lobsang had been studying at the Seraje Monastery, and some claim that he received teachings from the Dalai Lama there, although he says that this is untrue. If he did receive these teachings, according to Tibetan Buddhist beliefs, this would give him a karmic obligation to behave respectfully towards the Dalai Lama as his teacher. During the exodus, he joined the Saraje monks in their move to India. Eventually, the Indian government made plots of lands available to the exiled Tibetans, being sympathetic to their situation. It's not known when Lobsang chose to go by the name he's now known, Kelsang Gyatso, but many in the Tibetan Buddhist community are perturbed by his apparent choice to go by Geshi Kelsang Gyatso. In a 2008 letter, Kelsang Gyatso wrote My true situation is that in Tibet I have studied Geshi training for many years in my local monastery called Jampaling and Tashi Lunpo University, and I have passed two examinations. One examination is in memorization, and the other is the actual examination. Soon after that, people publicly used to say to me Geshi. He claims that he undertook a Geshi ceremony at Saraje Monastery in 1973. The term Geshi denotes a specific level of qualification and a completion of extensive studies within the Tibetan monastery system. Taking on this address without the qualification could be likened to an academic going by doctor without having completed a PhD. And in 2015, the Dalai Lama told a group of ex-NKT followers in the UK, quote, I know Kelsang Gyatso. He was not a Geshi, but a good scholar. An open letter with 15 Tibetan official seals as signatories states that he is not even a Geshi. In 2008, Kelsang Gyatso wrote, Generally for anyone to become a real Geshi, it is not necessary that the Dalai Lama recognize them as a Geshi. Before the Dalai Lama, so many pure and real Geshis appeared. These Kadampa Geshe's have no connection with the Dalai Lama. I have no connection with the Dalai Lama, but I still believe that I am a Geshe. Whether or not Gyatso is qualified as a Geshe or has received full ordination has some bearing over his authority to ordain others. In addition to this, German academic Anne Iris Miriam Anders wrote in a 2019 paper about the commercialization and decontextualization that sometimes occurs with Buddhist practices in the West, quote, Considering the impact of elevating irresponsible people without considering the impact of their behavior on group dynamics, society and their victims, one might raise the question of the minimum requirements for education and leadership qualities of such spiritual authorities. According to Kelsang, following his time at Sarah he undertook a period of meditative retreat. However, according to the undated open letter from the 15 Tibetan officers, which included all the Tibetan monasteries, the office of the Dalai Lama, branch offices of the Tibetan government and more. He in fact spent this period at Missouri in Uttar Pradesh as a chronic tuberculosis patient. Whether after retreat or convalescence, it was next that Kelsang Gyatso took himself to Cumbria in the United Kingdom. During the time of the 13th Dalai Lama, a Gelug leader named Pabonka Rinpoche opposed the idea of inclusivity and destroyed Nyingma religious artifacts, as well as attempting to forcibly convert Nyingma monasteries to the Gelug belief system. Academic David N.K. wrote in his 1997 paper, The New Kadampa Tradition and the Continuity of Tibetan Buddhism in Transition quote, A key element of Pabonka Rinpoche's outlook was the cult of the protective deity Dorje Shugden which he employed against other traditions and, thereby, wedded to the idea of Gelug exclusivism. In 1978, Gelug Lama Zaimi Rinpoche published a text entitled The Oral Transmission of the Intelligent Father, in which David N.K. explains that he, quote, attacks as corrupt those within his tradition who have eclectic tendencies and asserts the preeminence of the Gelug tradition which is symbolized and safeguarded by Dorje Shugden. Peter Popham described the contents of the so-called Yellow Book for Newsweek as quote, Spelling out the damage of which Dorje Shugjan was capable. The Protector has punished those who corrupted the Gelug order with various episodes of untimely death, the monk wrote. And his book was a pithy and gruesome collection of the stories about how other high Tibetan lamas who had corrupted the Gelug school with other tenets and traditions, who had taken teachings from the other three Tibetan schools as well as the Gelug, had got into trouble with the authorities or embroiled in lawsuits and thrown into jail, then later died suddenly and without medical explanation. All these unlucky events the author maintained were products of the wrath of Dorje Shugden, end quote. The text was, naturally, not very well received by the other schools of Tibetan Buddhism, and the Dalai Lama went public with his belief that the worship of Dorje Shugden, also known as Dolgyul, was not to be encouraged. He saw the deity as being in conflict with the other schools of Tibetan Buddhism, which he regarded as equal, and with deities representing the Tibetan people more generally. But those who were devoted to the worship of Dorje Shugden as a part of their practice could not disengage so easily. In 1975, the Foundation for the Preservation of the Mahayana Tradition, or the FPMT, was founded by Lama Thubten Yeshi, to unite a number of Western Tibetan Buddhism centres that were popping up as knowledge of the religion was spreading in the West. In 1976, a British branch of the FPMT was established called the Manjushri Institute. It was here at Conishead Priory, in a Gothic revival castle on 150 acres in Cumbria. The Kelsang Gyatso found himself teaching alongside a translator in the United Kingdom from August of 1977. By 1979, Kelsang was set on creating his own following and established the independent Madhyamaka Centre. Lama Yeshe asked Kelsang to resign from his position at the Manjushri Institute, with his attention split from the mission of the FPMT, but Kelsang refused to leave. Tensions increased over the following years, even including a mediation from the Dalai Lama himself, but by March 1984, Lama Yeshi had passed away and Kelsang had taken full direction of the Institute. The following year, Tharpa Publications was formed, and though it originally published a variety of texts, it would eventually be given the sole purpose of publishing Kelsang Gyatso's books. In 1986, Kelsang announced that he was going to run a series of teachings about Dorje Shugden. When word of this got to the Dalai Lama, his people sent copies of the speeches he had made on the subject of the contentious deity to be distributed to any students taking the classes, but Kelsang ignored this direction. While there are some Dolgil followers who do practice an inclusive Buddhism, George Shugden, in partnership with an exclusive adherence to the Gelug School, became central to Kelsang Gyatso's practices. In 1987, Kelsang entered a three-year retreat in Scotland and worked on writing out more of his teachings, completing his texts Joyful Path of Good Fortune and Universal Compassion, The Meditation Handbook, Introduction to Buddhism, and Guide to Dikini Land. Tenzin P. Pudnrabpa was the translator of each of Kelsang's major books, and some suggest that what helped them reach such high levels of success was the excellent translations and the packaging. They were accessible to a Western audience in a way that other books on Tibetan Buddhism had not previously been. While he was writing in Scotland, Kelsang directed the Institute to give away all of the books in its library that weren't written by himself. This was discomforting to many, and some abandoned their courses there as a result. But he told those who remained that the move was about maintaining purity. As Kelsang explained in his later book, Understanding the Mind, quote, Every teacher and every tradition has a slightly different approach and employs different methods. The practices taught by one teacher will differ from those taught by another, and if we try to combine them we shall become confused, develop doubts, and lose direction. If we try to create a synthesis of different traditions, we shall destroy the special power of each and be left only with a mishmash of our own making that will be a source of confusion and doubt. Former follower Ani Jumgirl told Judith Hertog for Tricycle magazine, quote, It felt as if I were doing something naughty when I was reading books by other teachers, including His Holiness. And it's just crazy that reading Dharma made me feel as if I were 16 and smoking a joint behind a garage. Dharma means Buddhist teachings. This approach contrasts with the Dalai Lama's words to an NKT survivors group in Cambridge when he was in the UK in 2015. Quote, because of Tantric tradition, we tend to emphasize guru yoga and following the guru's word. However, even the Buddha advised his followers to examine what he said, to investigate whether it made sense rather than accepting it just at face value. Read more widely. Study the works of Nagarjuna, Chandrakirti, and Shantideva. Also read Jade Tsongkhapa's Great Stages of the Path to Enlightenment. Don't worry about having made mistakes. The 14th Dalai Lama did too. Upon his return from Scotland, Kelsang Gyatso founded his own school, which he considered separate now from even the Gelug school, and he called it the Nukadampa tradition, also known as the NKT. Those who wanted to follow the NKT were told that they would need to accept Kelsang Gyatso as their primary spiritual leader and his teachings as their only source of Buddhism in order to keep their understanding pure. Since 1991, according to David NK, quote, the NKT has declared its total independence from the degenerate religio political world of Tibetan Gelug Buddhism and proclaimed itself to be an autonomous modern and Western tradition. Dorje Shugden remains central to NKT practice. The Dalai Lama told Peter Popham for Newsweek that, quote, The practice is very sectarian. Those who believe in it are fundamentalists. Perhaps they will attain high spiritual insight thanks to Dorje, but I don't think so. The fourth edition of Kelsang Gyatso's book, Meaningful to Behold, in 1994 removed its dedications to the long life of the Dalai Lama. The lack of pictures of the Dalai Lama in NKT centres is unusual when compared to most Tibetan Buddhism centres. The NKT has pictures instead of Kelsang Gyatso, of course, and of Dorje Shugden. The aforementioned open letter from the Tibetan officials and an article by Madeline Bunting for The Guardian both refer to the story of a man who was told he couldn't return to his NKT centre after being overheard saying that he admired the Dalai Lama. In 1996, the Shugden Supporters Common, or SSC, was set up and appeared to have close ties to the NKT. It launched a very public attack on the Dalai Lama, calling him a ruthless dictator and saying that his position against Dorje Shugdan worship made him an oppressor of religious freedom. Journalist Madeleine Bunting spoke to Bristol University Indo-Tibetan studies scholar Paul Williams in 1996 and he said, quote, The Dalai Lama is trying to modernise the Tibetans' political vision and trying to undermine the factionalism. He has the dilemma of the liberal. Do you tolerate the intolerant? I'm going to take you on a small diversion here, because as often happens when I'm researching this podcast, I found myself down a little rabbit hole that I feel is very relevant to many of the current issues we're facing in society. The paradox of tolerance, as it's known, is an interesting proposition. How can the tolerant do anything but tolerate those who are intolerant without undermining their position? Philosopher Karl Popper wrote of the paradox of tolerance in his 1945 book, The Open Society and Its Enemies, quote, If we extend unlimited tolerance even to those who are intolerant, then the tolerant will be destroyed and tolerance with them. In this formulation, I do not imply, for instance, that we should always suppress the utterance of intolerant philosophies. As long as we can counter them by rational argument and keep them in check by public opinion, suppression would certainly be most unwise. But we should claim the right to suppress them if necessary, even by force. Just to cut in here, and so that I'm not losing your attention, this is the bit that I think has huge relevance today. Quote, for it may easily turn out that they are not prepared to meet us on the level of rational argument, but begin by denouncing all argument. They may forbid their followers to listen to rational argument, because it is deceptive, and teach them to answer arguments by the use of their fists or pistols End quote. Although in some cases this might not have reached the level of fists or pistols yet, We all know we're currently seeing huge amounts of misinformation in the press and on social media here in Australia, in the UK, the USA and elsewhere. Karl Popper's conclusion is that We should therefore claim in the name of tolerance the right not to tolerate the intolerant. We should claim that any movement preaching intolerance places itself outside the law And we should consider incitement to intolerance and persecution as criminal, in the same way we should consider incitement to murder or to kidnapping or to the revival of the slave trade as criminal. With this text, Princeton University Press in their 2013 edition noted that Karl Popper was seeking to diagnose the intellectual origins of German and Soviet totalitarianism, by the way. Diversion over. The Shugdan Supporters Common, or SSC, was set up in the UK in 1996 and was the organisation behind loud protests at the Office of Tibet and against the Dalai Lama on his visit to the country that year. The SSC made claims of human rights violations to Amnesty International, but the charity could not substantiate them and refused to get involved in spiritual debates. Reuters reported that some Dalai Lama supporters acknowledged there have been cases of discrimination but they say it is not systematic and not encouraged by the Dalai Lama. While the NKT distanced itself officially from the SSC and other Western Shugden supporter groups, they were all generally found to be filled with and run by NKT practitioners. Journalist Andrew Brown wrote for The Independent in July 1996, quote, No one had heard of the Shugden supporters or the still more mysterious Freedom Foundation until the spring when they both started to issue press releases. Ringing the number given by one of these organisations, I got through to a Buddhist centre run by a rich, fast-growing and secretive Buddhist sect called the NKT. Andrew Brown found himself able to speak with Kelsang Gyatso directly, and having interviewed NKT devotees prior to the meeting, he wrote, quote, Much of what he said to me was already entirely familiar. The claim of four million Shugden supporters the idea that the Dalai Lama was planning to return to China as a communist puppet ruler, the preposterous assertion made with great force that the Guardian's religious affairs correspondent, a devout Catholic, was working for a rival Buddhist organisation. Earlier in the article, the reporter had also dismissed the four million figure as preposterous, what with there being only about six million Tibetans in the world at most. In that same year, 1996, Kelsang Gyatso's former monastery, Sarah J., expelled him for being a, quote, holder of broken commitments and wrong view. In 1997, three close associates of the Dalai Lama were murdered in India, with Shugdan followers implicated in the knife attack on monk Lobsang Gyatso and two of his students. Kelsang Gyatso and the NKT denied any association with the attackers, but the conflict over Dorje Shugden was not going away. The campaign against the Dalai Lama continued in earnest, and the Sydney Morning Herald reported on posters appearing in Dharamasala, India in 2002, threatening to kill him if he didn't leave, with police suspecting Shugdan supporters of putting them up in the town that hosted the exiled Tibetan government. The Dalai Lama's 2008 and 2015 visits to the UK were both met with further protests from NKT members. The Australian Sangha Society, as a representative body for monks and nuns of all Buddhist traditions, wrote about Sydney protests, quote, The ASA wishes to express its dismay at the conduct of robed members of the new Kadampa tradition, Western Shugdan Society and associated organisations during the teachers given by H.H. the Dalai Lama on 11-15 to 15 June 2008 at Olympic Stadium, Sydney, Australia. The ASA recognises there is a difference of opinion with the Dalai Lama on various issues. It is the right of NKT and WSS members to disagree with the Dalai Lama's opinions, but their disagreement should be expressed in a peaceful, respectful and reasonable manner. A group of ex-NKT members wrote in an open letter of declaration in August 2014, quote, nkt slash wss slash isc that's the international shugden community say that his holiness the dalai lama is a liar a difference of opinion does not equate to lying his holiness holds a different opinion from Kelsang Gyatso and the nkt about the nature and history of dolgyul shugden and the effects of this practice upon the well-being of his holiness the tibetan people and their cause to call his holiness a liar because of this difference of opinion makes no sense They continue, The allegation that the Dalai Lama is engaging in repression of freedom of religion is, in fact, more relevant to the way the NKT itself operates. NKT centres are dedicated to the exclusive devotion of Kelsang Gyatso. NKT centres and teachers are only permitted to teach from books written by Kelsang Gyatso. Teachers other than those trained by the NKT and appointed by Kelsang Gyatso are not allowed. Ordained NKT people and others are told they will be reborn in the hell realms and may not get enlightened if they leave the NKT. Jamie Doward reported for The Observer that ISC members have in the past disseminated images depicting the Dalai Lama as a pig. They have described him as a Muslim masquerading as a Buddhist and compared him with Hitler. Following the publication of The Observer article, the paper received hundreds of emails demanding retractions and apologies, a situation that Reader's editor Stephen Pritchard described as having all the hallmarks of a carefully organized campaign to pressure the paper to kill a story, and all from apparently peace-loving Buddhists. Columbia University academic Robert Barnett, who studies Tibetan politics, told Mark Hay for a 2015 Vice article, quote, It's not unusual that a new quasi-Buddhist cult emerges and a lot of Westerners join it. But what is really worrying is that Shugdan followers also take on the idea that they should become activists to take on the Dalai Lama. Prior to one of the Dalai Lama's UK visits, mainstream Buddhists were briefed in a document seen by The Observer that, quote, all spokespersons and community members need to be warned to show a calm face in response to the Shugden supporters' now well-established tactic of deliberately provoking and filming responses to support their victimisation claims. The other party with an interest in this split? China. A Reuters investigation by David Leigh, Paul Mooney and Benjamin Kang spoke with former Shugden follower Lama Setter who told them in 2015 that he and others were paid by China quote, to plan and coordinate the activities of the sect's followers overseas and that quote, the Chinese are using them as a tool to make the Dalai Lama look fake, to achieve their own ends, to undermine Tibetan Buddhism and to fragment Tibetan society. Thubten Samfel from the Tibet Policy Institute, a Tibetan government-in-exile think tank, told Isaac Stonefish for Foreign Policy that China is big on divide and rule. We feel they are using Dorje Shugden as a force not only to oppose the leadership of the Dalai Lama, but to sow dissension within the Tibetan community. Not long after the Reuters' special report, the international Shugden community announced on their website that they would completely stop organising demonstrations against the Dalai Lama and that as of the 10th of March 2016, they would cease to operate. A number of academics would only speak on Shugden to journalist Isaac Stonefish on condition of anonymity for his foreign policy article, Meet the Buddhists Who Hate the Dalai Lama More Than the Chinese Do. Quote, Sources had mentioned emailed harassment from Shugden followers. The NKT ex-members group also wrote, Quote, There are many documented cases where the NKT threatened to sue using libel law and thus silenced other Buddhist organisations, umbrella groups, internet discussion forums and academics, authors and publishers. People inside the group can realistically fear social exclusion, illegal eviction or police arrest if they criticise policies. In our experience, the NKT generally prioritises the expansion of the group over the welfare of individuals. The NKT Survivors Internet Group numbers over 1,200 subscribers. There is no Dalai Lama Survivors Group. The letter is signed by 24 ex-members and 7 supporters. It has one other claim of particular note. Quote, both in 1996-7 and in 2008, the demonstrations against His Holiness the Dalai Lama coincided with the public exposure on the internet of the alleged sexual misconduct of the deputy spiritual directors of the NKT. Certainly Kelsang's one-time named successor, Gelong Thubten Gyatso, aka Neil Elliott, was disrobed in 1996, and Samden Gyatso, aka Steve Wass departed in 2006 under mysterious circumstances. Followers claimed that their complaints about the latter's sexual misconduct were originally ignored, but when they became public knowledge, Kelsang was forced to take action and remove Samden. Neil Elliott had been important as an interpreter heavily involved with Kelsang since the Tibetan first arrived in the UK, and in spite of his many years' residence, Kelsang never did learn to speak English very well. At the time of his disrobing, journalist Madeleine Bunting quoted former NKT members calling Neil the power behind the throne. He was eventually permitted to return to the NKT and was reordained as Kelsang Thugton in 2017. <laughs> In Kelsang Gyatso's book, Joyful Path of Good Fortune, The Complete Buddhist Path to Enlightenment, he writes that it is necessary to regard one's spiritual guide as a Buddha, as, quote, If I always regard my spiritual guide as a Buddha, I shall overcome doubts and hesitations and develop the three types of faith very strongly. With faith I shall gain realizations and quickly receive the fruits of my Dharma practice. Under the heading, How to Develop Conviction that Our Spiritual Guide is a Buddha, he makes four points, the fourth of which is, quote, Appearances are deceptive and our own opinions are unreliable. I think there's a fine but crucial line between examining one's beliefs and especially one's prejudices and trusting one's own perception. It's really important to understand how society has caused you to see things in certain ways, to challenge your preconceptions, and to know when something is fake news, for example. But for entirely well-meaning people who end up in cults, many leaders try to take advantage of their desire for enlightenment or self-improvement by undermining their perceptions and causing a huge amount of self-doubt. Once you can't trust yourself anymore, where else can you place your trust but in your leader? Kelsang Gyatso continues, quote, We may object, although these ways of reasoning are valid and lead me to conclude that my spiritual guide is a Buddha, when I actually meet my spiritual guide, he does not appear to be a Buddha because I can see faults, and a Buddha would not possess any faults. He then goes on to give advice on how to change this way of thinking. To me, there's a clear danger in not being able to discuss someone's faults and to in fact be encouraged to ignore them entirely. I generally see a big red flag with any leadership that does not want to hear and respond to criticism and look to improve. Madeline Bunting wrote for The Guardian, quote, One former member wrote to Kelsang with a number of concerns about the NKT. In his reply, Kelsang rejected all the criticism and threatened legal action if any of the criticisms were ever published. Kelsang Gyatso in his text goes into more detail about how an impure mind can't trust its own perception, and that to overcome this, one must develop believing faith that our spiritual guide is a Buddha. The end game is quote, Whenever we think of our spiritual guide, we think of Buddha, and whenever we think of Buddha, we think of our spiritual guide. We always think of them as one and the same. A lecturer in Tibetan Buddhism explained to Madeleine Bunting that although it is part of the practice to attribute Buddha-like qualities to your teacher, out of the cultural context and conflated with a Western god-like concept, Kelsang's teachings take on a different dimension. German academic Anne Iris Miriam Anders writes of this being a distortion of the original concepts in Vajrayana, the Buddhist tradition from which the Tibetan schools emerged. Quote, The visualization of the completion stage in particular tends to be misunderstood and used for self elevation, or even an expectation of constantly merging on the side of a teacher, or anticipatory obedience on the side of a student in this regard. Of course, it's not uncommon in many religions for followers to be encouraged to have a high level of devotion to their leader and to elevate his or her status. But I think it's really important for this not to be a devotion that is demanded blindly but rather a devotion that is earned through mutual respect and ethical conduct. On the Dalai Lama's meeting with an NKT survivors group in Cambridge in 2015, he told them, Kelsang Gyatso's commentary to Shantideva's Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life is good. Still, pay attention to the four reliances. Depend not on the person, but on the teaching. Depend not on the words, but their meaning. Depend not on the provisional meaning but the definitive meaning, and finally, depend not on a superficial understanding but on wisdom. Read books, gather your friends together, and discuss what you've learned. Give each other confidence. I admire your courage. Believe in truth and the Buddha's authentic teachings. Madeline Bunting wrote for The Guardian that Kelsang Gyatso is for NKT followers, quote, Not just their teacher, but seen as the third Buddha. The first Buddha founded Buddhism 2,500 years ago, the second founded the Gelug School of Tibetan Buddhism in the 15th century, and now the NKT believe Buddha has appeared in the form of Kelsang to establish Buddhism in the West. (music) Journalist Judith Hertog spoke with Mexican former NKT member Renato Barajas who was ordained in 2013 and left in 2017. He told her that, quote, the NKT has two different faces, one is for the media and the public, and the other is for the people inside the NKT. Like many cults, what originally feels welcoming and positive from the initial interactions can become something quite different once you're deeply involved. Madeline Bunting wrote, quote, There is no apparent secrecy about the NKT, you can walk into any of their centres and be greeted by friendly, forthcoming people. Only people who are trusted are taken into an inner core and learn of the contradictions in the NKT. Jamie Kostek, who was a member in Seattle from 2007 to 2012, told Judith Hertog, quote, Everyone looks so happy when you come in. You have no idea of all the suffering going on behind the scenes. Dr. Michelle Haslam is a clinical psychologist who moved into the Naga Juno Kadampa Meditation Center in Northamptonshire, England in November 2016. She lived there until June 2018.
1: You're told that you're terribly fortunate
0: to have found the group and the teachings,
1: and they do pay a lot of interest in newcomers. There's a lot of gift giving. It's not genuine getting to know you slowly and getting to know each other's authentic personalities and giving each other presence when you actually want to it's all their practice which is aimed to help them achieve enlightenment mm. so in a way it's it's not very genuine but if you are lonely and you aren't feeling that great about yourself and they provide you with an instant it's a one stop shop a friend of mine you know referred to it as that You can normally get a lot of your needs met through the group. You can go for food, you can go for meditation, you can go to catch up with people, bump into people. It's the sense of community. It can feel really intense. It can feel really special. And the language is used to refer to it as special. Spiritual friendship, family, all of these highly emotionally loaded phrases. I have seen people who are very, very vulnerable turn up and at first people can say that it really helps them. I think it can provide initially the conditions for sort of stabilization for someone who's been homeless or been heartbroken or traumatized. So that those initial conditions, routine, community, purpose, It can also help you make meaning out of your suffering because you could say, oh, well, all that suffering led me to the Dharma. So it wasn't all for nothing.
0: I asked Dr. Haslam how she first became involved and what appealed to her initially about the NKT. I was working
1: in the area and I just returned from living abroad and I didn't know many people in the area. I found that I was quite lonely in the town that I was in, and I'd lived in a sustainable community in the past, and I got the impression that living in this way again would really suit me, and was good for pooling resources and sense of community. I'd heard lots of good things about meditation. I'd not heard anything about abuse in Buddhism. I'd not read any testimonies. And I was kind of interested in the mindfulness movement because of my job as a clinical psychologist where mindfulness is used quite frequently. And the NKT advertised themselves as teaching mindfulness and offering people supportive spiritual communities to live in, which is not what the testimonies suggest, that they're supportive, but I hadn't read those. I think I was also a bit depressed. So some of the teachings on suffering and not being able to find happiness in worldly life kind of spoke to me. I'd been to four or five classes at this particular center before I moved in. And the beginning classes, it's a bit like multi-level marketing where the beginners classes are very kind of soft and not too dogmatic, and there's less magical thinking. So for a newcomer, you don't get that many warning signs from the general program classes that they offer. They're kind of like relaxation-based and good for dealing with stress. Well, that's how it can feel anyway. There's quite a lot of spiritual bypassing, that's practiced at the beginning, that can feel quite good.
0: I wasn't aware of the term spiritual bypassing and asked Dr Haslam what this meant.
1: So the NKT believe that we're supposed to be happy all the time. So what that means is if you feel angry or sad or any other sort of unpleasant emotion, You're supposed to focus intellectually on an aspect of the teachings that is what they would call virtuous or pure. And that's supposed to give you an emotional response as well that's positive so that you don't feel the painful emotion. An example would be if you feel jealous, you're supposed to. Focus on the idea that you should be rejoicing in the other person's happiness rather than feeling jealous. What this means is you're not really addressing any underlying reasons why you're feeling the way that you are. And the spiritual bypassing in the beginning can feel like a relief. Lots of people told me they found it helpful at first. But in the long term, it has caused people psychological damage. They say you're transforming your negative minds, but I would argue that you're
0: actually just repressing. The blurb of Kelsang Gyatso's 2002 publication, Understanding the Mind, reads... This comprehensive explanation, based on Buddha's teachings and the experiences of accomplished meditators, offers a deep insight into the nature and functions of the mind. The first part describes different types of mind in detail, revealing the depth and profundity of Buddhist understanding of human psychology, and how this can be used to improve our lives. The second part is a practical guide to developing and maintaining a light, positive mind showing how to recognise and abandon states of mind that harm us and to replace them with peaceful and beneficial ones. The inspiring discovery we make from this is that we can attain a lasting state of joy independent of external conditions. From a psychological perspective, Dr Haslam explained how the NKT approach differs from cognitive behavioural therapy, or CBT, which is a common treatment method in the mental health field that you may have come across before.
1: The idea that in cognitive behavioral therapy, for example, you focus sometimes on a more balanced alternative thought to your mm. catastrophizing thought or your really depressing thought. But the thinking that they practice in the NKT, is not more balanced. It's just focusing on an absolute truth that's in line with the doctrine. So you're basically negating your emotion and You're actually negating the existence of yourself at times and your feelings because the NKT believe that everything is empty of inherent existence. Emptiness is a concept throughout Buddhist teachings, but the way that they teach it in the NKT is quite nihilistic. So lots of people go around invalidating their own feelings and each other's feelings by focusing on emptiness teachings about how feelings don't really mean anything and they don't really exist and how you don't really exist. So
0: it's quite extreme, really. Dr. Haslam told me more about her thoughts on the NKT's main forms of meditation. It's quite soothing at the beginning.
1: No, I don't think it actually does anything, but I think the person leading the meditations, which I would argue are not meditation in a lot of ways, but the person leading them has quite a hypnotic voice and it can be quite soothing. The teachings are quite long. They talk for quite a long time in quite a hypnotic voice and you might be tired. There's kind of this anesthetic benefit for a lot of people, mm-hmm. I think. You know, they're having a break from their ordinary life. They've maybe gone on a retreat and they may be less stressed. There's quite a lot of thought stopping. So you're told it's a breathing meditation, but really it's a thought stopping activity. I remember the National Spiritual Director would lead the breathing meditation by saying, and now stop thinking about your work your family, your problems, which is actually a prompt. So you're being prompted to remember difficult things whilst being told you should stop thinking about them. It's not really even mindfulness. They advertise themselves as mindfulness teachers in line with Western definitions, which they aren't. It's a thought-stopping activity. And in the contemplation meditation, you focus on an aspect of the doctrine and you're not supposed to allow your concentration to move away from the teaching. So it's actually thought stopping and thought control and emotional control. But you're told that it's meditation and that it's compassion and wisdom and it's pure and it's wonderful and it's beautiful. And so you might be feeling a lot of emotional contagion and a lot of awe. And so you might be in a trance state or a sort of state of infatuation. Lots of people, when you look at videos of followers of the New Kadampa tradition, they look very gooey-eyed and infatuated and kind of in love with Kelsang so So because of all of that sort of emotional manipulation, your critical thinking skills are not working that well. And you perhaps haven't been to any other type of meditation. And you just believe that Buddhism is good, because you haven't heard about all the abuse that's coming out or the ways that it's
0: actually damaged people psychologically. Scholar Anne Iris Miriam Anders wrote a paper in 2019 with the typically academic-sounding name, Silencing and Oblivion of Psychological Trauma, Its Unconscious Aspects and Their Impact on the Inflation of Vajrayana, An Analysis of Cross-Group Dynamics and Recent Developments in Buddhist Groups Based on Qualitative Data. There's a lot to this paper that mainly references Rigpa another Western Buddhist group facing various cult accusations, but much appears to apply to the NKT. And if you can handle a wordy academic analysis, it's really worth a read. She says, quote, From a psychological perspective, the patterns of constant humiliation and the systematic questioning of one's own perception are detrimental, especially when this is tolerated for decades, believing it will serve the purpose of enlightenment. Some people consider themselves advanced and assume that they are training in sophisticated meditation techniques, even though they actually just rehearse dissociation. I mentioned to Dr Haslam that I had certainly heard mainly positive things about Buddhism prior to this.
1: I mean, it's all quite clever really because their marketing... Talks about, you know, how degenerate and capitalistic and selfish Western people are. And lots of people revere Eastern Mm. philosophy and teachings. And we look to those practices thinking that they hold something that we're lacking, but we're sold it in a Western capitalistic way through misleading advertising and hidden agendas. So we're actually being exploited, but we think that Buddhism, we just don't think to look out for these warning
0: signs. The UK organisation Inform says it is an independent educational charity providing information about minority religions and sects, which is accurate, up-to-date, and as evidence-based as possible. Its aim is to prevent harm based on misinformation about minority religions and sects by bringing the insights and methods of academic research into the public domain. Over all of their recent annual reports, the Nukadampa tradition takes out one of the top spots for groups most inquired about. Though last report Rigpa knocked the NKT out of its former top spot. Most concerns, the organisation says, were raised by former members. It also listed the NKT as a group that has raised questions around targeting students in its 2018 leaflet entitled, Extremism on University Campuses. Though it was careful to note that, the fact that Inform has received a significant number of inquiries about these groups and others does not mean that they are necessarily controversial or harmful in every respect or in the eyes of all people. I asked Dr Haslam about day-to-day life in the NKT.
1: Practitioners who are very devoted, would usually engage in prayers at least once a day. And those are to pray for the long life of Kelsang Gyatso and for the flourishing of the tradition and the spreading of the Dharma and obstructions to their spiritual realizations to be pacified. And it's all about achieving enlightenment, really. And then the classes, it depends. If you live in the centres, you have to go to one class at least per week as part of your sort of contract. And lots of people, they pay like a monthly subscription to come to classes. Everyone's different, so you don't know how much people are doing. Some people work full-time and engage in their practice in the time that they have left, other people, their practice is the central element of their life and they're an ordained member and they work basically for the tradition, I would, if you want to call it that, almost like a slave. A lot of these people, I've seen them being treated really poorly and they've reported that they were treated really poorly after they leave. Lots of people who actually live in the centres say that they. Work so hard that they don't actually have that much time to do the meditations that they want to do. The meditations also include visualization of deities entering your mind and also you self-generate, which means imagining yourself as a Buddha physically and mentally. So there's quite a lot of visualization. And those practices can really interfere with your ability to be in touch with reality. In KT, practitioners are known to hallucinate Buddhas, really, but when you're in the group, that kind of experience is reframed as virtuous and wonderful and pure and as a sign of you becoming more advanced in the spiritual path. Whereas, obviously, if you leave the group
0: those experiences will be labelled as a sign of psychosis. Dr Haslam told me that there are some residents who don't end up having much of a life outside of their NKT centre.
1: Some people claim benefits in order to live in the centres and they don't leave very much and often they don't have access to a car and the public transport's usually poor because the centres are normally in the middle of nowhere. So they can become quite institutionalised and isolated quite quickly.
0: Former member Linda Chiardiello wrote about her experiences on Medium, quote, I did give up my career path to work full-time for the growth of the centre and with my teacher's blessing began to sign on the dole instead. I was given the job of education program coordinator and with so much work being asked of me, I found little time to actually meditate. Former member Peter Graham Dryberg shared on the New Kadampa Survivor Testimony's Facebook page that his involvement, quote, cost me my home, my job, and around £10,000 in debt. But most importantly, for a long time, it cost me my confidence and self-esteem, my dignity, and my heart. He describes endless financial contributions and volunteer hours working around his full-time job in drug and alcohol treatment. Quote, Even working from 9am to 5pm Monday to Friday outside the centre, I would often be up until 2am working on the building and up again at 5am to get the shrine room, Gompa, ready for the day. My weekends had become full of cherishing the centre, and I lost any friends and was encouraged to do so as they were negative to the path, who were not connected to the NKT. It became my entire life, my world, my every waking and sleeping moment. I asked Dr. Haslam if she could tell me anything about Kelsang Gyatso himself.
1: Well, it's quite difficult to give you an impression of him given that he hasn't been seen since 2013. You know, newcomers won't meet him. And what I've learned since leaving is very different to what I was told when I lived there. You're told that he's the third living Buddha and that he's an enlightened being, and that he only has good wishes for all of his spiritual children and all living beings. But he actually didn't even complete his Geshe exams and was expelled from the monastery where he was studying originally. There are testimonies that reveal that he has showed manipulative and controlling behaviours when he took over the original FPMT centre and banned the books and removed all the photos to the Dalai Lama. There's actually quite a lot of information available that suggests that he is not an omniscient, all-loving being. It's thought by ex-members that the inner circle control the narrative about his health by claiming that he is in writing retreat producing books and that's why you don't know where he is it's been a long time now and he's never recorded a video he's never been seen in anything that actually proves that he's still alive mm. or well some of the photos that get posted on the followers' Facebook group now and then, saying, here are recent photos of him. They've actually been found to be old ones that have been released in the past. And he doesn't age in any of them. It's been like seven years. Most ex-members believe that the most recent books were actually written
0: by the senior members and not Kelsang Yeso. I asked Dr. Haslam if there is a suspicion that Kelsang Gyatso is no longer alive and whether this would be kept from members for fear of losing control over devotees.
1: Yeah, most people that I speak to believe that he's probably got some kind of degenerative illness that means he can't control his mind. That would mean he wouldn't be able to be seen because it would confirm he's not an enlightened being because apparently they're not supposed to get degenerative diseases. Some people do believe that he's been long dead. The management, I think they know that membership drops quite a lot once the leader dies. I think that the inner circle of senior management, they tell the other teachers and the more junior members that they can't secure the perimeter of the temples sufficiently in order to ensure his safety. And so that's why. He doesn't make an appearance. So they kind of instill this fear of assassination, which I think sort of elevates him to a more dangerous, magical position. It also means that followers are in a state of hyper-arousal and also develop a sort of religious persecution complex. Because people have been heard saying recently that oh, well, he just couldn't possibly come because it's just not safe enough for him. I don't know. It's all speculation.
0: I asked Dr Haslam if she felt that there was anything dangerous about the way that the NKT operates.
1: When you have felt their attacks and the senior management have actually tried to destroy your life, which I'll tell you about later. You have an embodied knowledge that it's a dangerous group because you have felt the narcissistic rage and you have felt the punishment. Unfortunately, most of the testimonies are not public and most of the threats and the attacks on ex-members are not in the public domain because people are afraid of further harm to themselves and their families and because they do get threatened into silence. So people tell me about some of the awful stuff that they have received. There's things like death threats people have received, funeral brochures have been sent to people's parents with their name on. They produce defamation propaganda online, that's the main thing that they do about critics and testimony writers. They send legal threats to anyone who wants to write a book. They use fake identities so that you can't prosecute or sue them for defamation. They have like automatic programs that dislike my videos as soon as they go online. They did that until I called it out in a video and then they stopped doing it. The Inner Circle control the outer circle. So I'd say the NKT is highly dangerous and unfortunately there's still not enough information available that explains this for the general public to access because of the threats. That's why I'm doing quite a lot of these podcasts and talking on different platforms because they've already attacked me and I already made myself vulnerable, unfortunately. So I think it's important that people know that this is what they do.
0: I mentioned to Dr Haslam that it seems she was very brave to speak out and she told me that she wasn't sure if it was brave or stupid or naive.
1: So I don't know how much risk I'm in now, but my workplaces have to remain confidential because otherwise they harass my superiors and claim that I'm mentally unstable and shouldn't be allowed to work as a psychologist. I think realistically my workplaces will probably remain confidential for the rest of my career, but I couldn't live with myself anymore knowing what I knew and not speaking up as a psychologist because. That goes against my values and internally I couldn't integrate it and I couldn't hold it in and feel authentic and like a whole person. So this is what I've done. There are lots of people who never do come forward because of the fear.
0: Former member Jeffrey Bond wrote in a Medium article, quote, It is common culture in Kadampa centres to regard ex-members with spite in private. Common terms used are mentally ill, strongly delusional, damaged goods and even maras. Ex-members that dare to speak out are literally demonised. We lose our humanity and become rabid dogs in their eyes.
1: Yeah, I'm like an evil spirit or a spy who Mm. is trying to lead all living beings away from enlightenment so that they'll be reborn in Hellrealm. They call me all sorts of things. I'm a spy, I'm a Mara. It didn't go my way, so now I want to punish the NKT. The idea that I'm worried about people, it can't even cross their minds.
0: Dr Haslam described the NKT's actions towards her and others as Darvo, which is a concept I hadn't come across before. It's D-A-R-V-O and stands for Deny, Attack and Reverse Victim and Offender. University of Oregon Professor of Psychology Dr. Jennifer J. Freed explains it as, A reaction perpetrators of wrongdoing may display in response to being held accountable for their behaviour, which she says is particularly common in sexual offenders. The background to this is that after leaving the NKT, Dr. Haslam published a report online entitled, Potential harm to mental and physical health through exposure to the new Kadampa tradition, from her own experience and also from her perspective as a clinical psychologist. The backlash was immediate. Her workplace received an email from uh, Dr. Robert Harrison claiming that he was concerned about their employee's state of mind. Dr. Haslam was forwarded the email and felt that it was a clear attack from the NKT. She shared the email on social media with the mindset of exposing this behaviour, but this move was a violation of her workplace's data protection policy. Dr Haslam told me that had she been a permanent member of staff, she would have received a warning for this, but as a temporary contractor, her contract wasn't renewed. What happened next is fairly eye-opening. This Dr Robert Harrison published a website under the domain doctor-michelle-haslam.com, which, if you know much about search engine optimization, means that right now, if you Google Dr. Michelle Haslam, it's the first result that comes up. The site's main heading is a quote in large font that says, Dr. Michelle Haslam's contract was terminated due to gross misconduct. Content from the site includes quotes about videos that Dr. Haslam had previously posted, such as, Her behavior was variously manic and depressive and at times exhibited signs of high anxiety. I was surprised Dr. Haslam was choosing to air her condition publicly on YouTube rather than seeking support from fellow professionals as she would advise clients to. And, after watching several of Michelle's videos, the warning signs became apparent that she may be undergoing the early stages of a nervous breakdown. Nowhere on the site does it say more about what kind of doctor this Dr. Robert Harrison is, and he states that he was left with no other option than to publish his story because Dr. Haslam continued to accuse him of defamation and intimidation. He claims that he was unaware of Dr. Haslam's report at the time of writing to her manager, and that, quote, My intention in contacting Dr. Haslam's superiors was to draw their attention to indications that she may be in need of support and help. There are a number of things to unpack here, but I reckon my top two are, would any kind of doctor with serious concerns over another person's mental health state publish a website all about it? And, if the reason for doing so was to counter unfounded claims of defamation and interrogation, why would the website be given a domain to make it appear as the first search result for Dr. Michelle Haslam rather than for Dr. Robert Harrison? who is presumably the one whose name needs protecting from these baseless claims. I'll let you take a guess as to how easy it is to Google someone with a name as generic as Robert Harrison. Here's Dr Haslam again.
1: I'm intrigued to see how long they leave up the defamation website against me because everyone who sees it, it helps to warn them off the NKT. It says a lot more about the group than it does about the victim.
0: Dr. Haslam told me about how those within the NKT perceive those outside of the tradition.
1: Unfortunately, what happens is that people, through thought reform, they start to believe that outsiders and non-believers are sort of unfortunate and more deluded and more mundane and have ordinary minds compared to those within the NKT. So it can really make, communication difficult with family and friends and people do report that they in hindsight that they invalidated the thoughts and feelings of family and friends there's quite a lot of ways in which it affects your relationships
0: i asked dr haslam what eventually motivated her to leave the nkt she had made strong attachments to some people who were involved and though she knew she wasn't particularly happy or comfortable these friendships kept her involved. But she found that a relationship with a teacher turned emotionally abusive and that the teachings of the NKT in fact appeared to support the ongoing abuse.
1: Hypo-arousal can look quite spiritual. Like if you're still and quiet and calm, you can appear like you're further along some path and people flatter you and they talk about how patient you are and all of that but actually I was quite depressed and was calm on the outside but internally I was in distress quite frequently but I didn't communicate that I was in distress so within this relationship it became more and more abusive spiritually The teachings are actually quite sadistic and masochistic those who are masochistic kind of mesh with those who are sadistic and everyone can kind of be under the impression that they are becoming more wise and compassionate for example there are abuse enabling teachings like abuse is all created by your mind and an abuser is actually your teacher so you should consider them as beneficial and there's no such thing as abuse basically So for someone who's masochistic, that ties in with how they already treat themselves. And for someone who's sadistic, that gives them free reign over lots of vulnerable people to abuse them and then tell them that it's all just in their mind. And that they should be grateful for the abuse because they can transform any suffering into the spiritual path to enlightenment.
0: As Dr. Haslam was trying to put some distance between herself and this man, she was considering leaving the centre.
1: So people were using this metaphor of family to try and convince me to stay, whilst telling me that everything was all just my own karma and I had an impure mind and that's why I was perceiving impure behaviour in him. Unfortunately, people can't help but turn to the ideology to try and help you when you're distressed. When I tried to go to people who I trusted saying that I think that this is happening and I think it's abuse, they obviously couldn't help but turn to the teachings which were gaslighting me further. It must have been something I did in a previous life. I've got an impure
0: mind. It was when she got something in writing that Dr Haslam was able to seek another perspective from people not involved with the NKT.
1: So I then received an email from him and it was very clear in black and white how abusive it was. Somehow much clearer to me than in spoken word. I could then send that email to people outside of the group And a friend said to me, this isn't Buddhism, Michelle, this is just abuse. He's showing no genuine concern for your well-being. He's pretending that he cares about you whilst manipulating you to enable him to sleep with vulnerable women. Because of the rejoicing in each other's happiness business, Sometimes people tell you that you should be rejoicing in something that's actually inappropriate, like exploiting a vulnerable working visitor who looks up to a teacher. Teachers can have sexual relationships with people who attend their teachings. There's no safeguarding procedures or policies at all. And I didn't know at the time that alleged sexual abuse has been enabled and minimised for years in the NKT in this way. And so I desperately wanted to leave because I didn't feel safe. I didn't feel emotionally safe around anyone anymore. And I was really worried about how some of the working visitors were being exploited. And I was worried that they were going to be abused in the same way that I had been and nothing would be done about it. At the same time, I felt, yeah, I felt very responsible, but I also felt really terrified of just instantly going no contact with everyone. And I had become quite isolated, even though I worked full time. I hadn't been spending enough time with my friends and I'd lost kind of regular contact with quite a lot of people. And I felt really kind of ashamed to say to people who had been concerned that I did think it was a cult. But I did manage to leave, and as soon as I left, it was fine. You know, at first, there were no real issues. I just felt relieved, and I discovered that the general public was so much warmer and kinder and less abusive. Not everyone in the centres is abusive, but even those who are lovely, genuine practitioners. You know, they've been neglecting themselves, spiritually bypassing their emotional pain and their sexuality and all those things for years. And so they're not so friendly. They're not so engaged socially. When I left, I was just so relieved. I couldn't believe I'd waited that long to leave. And I felt so relieved to be far away from him and the group in general.
0: Tenzin Peljor told Judith Hertog for her Tricycle article, quote, They keep telling you that you have special karma to have become part of this exceptionally pure tradition, and then your ego gets hooked, and you become delusional because you are cut off from mainstream Buddhism and other sources that can correct your delusion. And after you've committed 10 or 12 years, it takes enormous bravery to admit that you've made a mistake. asked Dr Haslam if she had any thoughts on warning signs people should look out for if they were thinking about joining a similar group. She told me that she'd advise caution when thinking about joining any Western Buddhist group.
1: Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, mental health services are still not understanding the risks enough. And so... Some mental health charities recommend that you go and check out a Buddhist meditation class and they don't understand yet, despite several of us trying to warn them that this is making people vulnerable to recruitment. These groups, they don't practice trauma sensitive mindfulness or meditation, but at the very least, even if you're not abused, the practices They're not trauma informed and they often involve dissociating from your body or the sense of yourself, which if you have trauma, you already dissociate a little bit. That's going to make it worse. Perhaps if you do think that meditation is helpful for you, I would recommend trauma sensitive mindfulness of the body as a good starting place. And also to be aware that meditation has been sort of almost put on prescription like antidepressants used to be, well, and still are. It's not a cure for anxiety and depression. Lots of the research trials, they haven't been investigating adverse effects sufficiently. So the more recent research is finding adverse effects. And the mindfulness movement really got out of control. It's been sold as a panacea.
0: I know many people who do get a lot of benefits out of meditation, but I think Dr Haslam makes a good point that it's not a silver bullet, particularly for complex mental health conditions.
1: Yeah, I think in the next few years, the adverse effects of meditation and mindfulness meditation will be acknowledged. And hopefully people will be at less risk. But it's worth knowing that lots of these groups, they don't teach meditation in line with Western definitions. It's more like guided self hypnosis and visualization and thought reform in line with the teachings. So I guess my advice would be just to seek advice from former members to read as much as you can and to. Make sure that you understand your needs and your mental state, and also your social network needs and your friendship needs.
0: For those who are leaving the NKT and similar groups, Dr. Haslam suggests that there is a lack of support from therapists who really understand what they've been dealing with, which rings true to my experience in speaking with ex members of various groups as well.
1: So, we need to think about how we support people who are leaving and make sure that they know that there is support available I think unfortunately lots of people who leave these groups they're at risk of homelessness of mental health crises due to the practices but also the sort of rejection abandonment trauma and betrayal trauma that it can trigger and then trying to speak to family and friends about it who don't understand or have maybe sort of said oh well I told you so or Mm. whatever I think it's making a difference all of these podcasts and information that we're making available hopefully we can continue to help mental health professionals to understand the issues so that there's more support available for people the shame that most Ex members feel there's so many layers of shame. Shame that you got involved, shame about things that you said and did in the group, shame about how unwell you can feel afterwards, lack of a role in the outer outside world. You may not have a career path anymore. There's a lot of reasons to feel ashamed, and so. Survivors really need a compassionate. I don't really like to use the word compassionate because it reminds me of the fake Mm. compassion, but they really need a lot of empathy. They need a lot of care and gentle treatment. And some people walk away fairly easily and it doesn't affect them, you know, it depends on lots of things. Mm. But those who really did believe and really, committed they need to be able to speak to people who confirm their perception of reality and their feelings as valid because unfortunately when you leave you just think that you're mad because everyone that you knew is still there carrying on as if it's all fine and that can't help but make you feel mad and then when they actually accuse you of being mad you really need A lot of reassurance that you are not inadequate and that you may have PTSD, but that doesn't make you a terrible person or deluded or unspiritual or unethical or a bad person in any way.
0: Kelsang Gyatso pushed an ambitious expansion of the NKT from the start, seeking for it to become the largest Buddhist organisation in the West. In 2012, the first Gadampa primary school was launched in Derbyshire, but by 2016 it had been shut down, with Ofsted finding it inadequate against all measures including effectiveness of leadership and management, quality of teaching, learning and assessment, personal development, behaviour and welfare, and outcomes for pupils. Additionally, the report noted that leaders do not carry out their duties to follow up and report all child protection concerns in a timely manner and that from the body of 44 students, concerns raised by some children or young people or a child or young person during the inspection are being examined by the appropriate bodies. As of early 2020, the NKT website claims to have over 1,300 Kadampa centres and branches around the world. Quote, All Kadampa centres are non-profit organisations dedicated to benefiting their local community, and all their profits are donated to the International Temples Project. According to the NKT website again, the aim of the International Temples Project is to quote "...introduce the Buddhist faith and practice of the new Kadampa tradition publicly and to exemplify contemporary Buddhist practice through service to the public." It presently achieves this through building traditional and non-traditional temples, meditation and retreat centres, and through the activities of World Peace Cafes and DARPA Publications. Each centre runs as its own entity, which means complaints, for example to the charity regulators, only tend to reflect on an individual group rather than the larger organisation. Aside from those who work for free and contribute their labour to the centres, there's much emphasis on giving money in the form of donations leaving money in one's will, and reports also mention pressure to give interest-free loans, with Madeleine Bunting for The Guardian finding that at least one centre only ever paid back a loan if really pushed. At the time, one ex-member told the journalist that she'd been pressured to take out a bank loan to contribute to the building of a new centre and knew of a friend who'd given £32,000 that he'd borrowed from his parents. Then there are rent payments from those who live at the centres, money raised through festivals, and payments for various courses and texts. Former member Peter Graham Dryberg wrote in his post on the New Kadampa Survivor Testimonies Facebook page, quote, On times where I could afford to take out loans from my own bank, my responsibilities were great, and the respect I appeared to be shown matched this. On months where I had to pay back more to the bank than I could to the centre, I was almost shunned and kept to the side but I did so willingly as it meant I was balancing the negative karma from both this life and past lives, and who would not wish for this, especially in the road to enlightenment? Upon meeting Kelsang Gyatso in person, Peter expressed some concerns to which, quote, he would simply laugh and tell me that any worries were due to negative karma, and to simply see these issues as purifying negative karma, to see them as wonderful opportunities on the road to enlightenment. So as I had become so engrossed in seeing GKG as my living guru and a living embodiment of the Buddha himself, then of course I would thank him and feel that I had done wrong by even questioning the challenges and worries that I faced in daily centre life. Former member Carol McGuire writes, If a centre is going financially bankrupt, the local directors are responsible and have to pay for it. We know people who took a decade to pay off their debts incurred from being NKT centre directors. All and any profit from a closure, however, goes to the NKT. The most recent accounts with the UK Charity Commission were filed in October 2019 and show a 2018 income of over £6.8 million, as well as own-use assets valued at over £19.5 million and other assets at almost £12.4 million. It also lists charitable spending of just over £3 million with 40 employees and 350 volunteers. The countries of operation listed outside of the UK are Australia, Brazil, Chile, China, Croatia, Denmark, France, Germany, Hungary, Ireland, Italy, Japan, Mexico, Nepal, the Netherlands, Norway, Portugal, Romania, Singapore, South Africa, Spain, Sweden, Turkey and the United States. Here in Australia, the ASA, or Australian Sangha Association, released a statement about the NKT in April 2015. Quote, The opinion of the ASA is that for NKT members to represent themselves to the public as authentic Buddhist monks and nuns is wrong and misleading. One of the principal aims of the ASA is to help ensure the integrity and good reputation of Buddhism in general and the Sangha community in particular. We ourselves are not sure how to respond to this challenge but have decided to share our concerns with you. If you have some suggestions, we would welcome your input. For now, we feel that bringing this issue to the attention of the public is the best thing we can do. The New Kadampa Tradition website has a daily quote on its homepage, and the day I first visited, it was... All the happiness there is in this world arises from wishing others to be happy, and all the suffering there is in this world arises from wishing ourselves to be happy. It's from Kelsang Gyatso's Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. A quote from former member Tenzin Peljo's website, Tibetan Buddhism in the West, Problems of Adoption and Cross-Cultural Confusion, is from Thomas Merton and goes as follows. The most dangerous man in the world is the contemplative who is guided by nobody. He trusts his own visions, he obeys the attractions of an inner voice but will not listen to other men. He identifies the will of God with his own heart. And if the sheer force of his own self-confidence communicates itself to other people and gives them the impression that he really is a saint, such a man can wreck a whole city or a religious order or even a nation. The world is covered with scars that have been left in its flesh by visionaries like these. Kelsang Gyatso will be 89 this year. He hasn't been cited by most of his devotees since October 2013. For a man who has been so strict about his students following his teachings and his teachings alone, it remains to be seen what will happen to the new Kadampa tradition when he is confirmed to no longer be around at all. access ad-free episodes and support the production of this independent podcast via patreon patreon.com forward slash ltaspod this episode of let's talk about sex was written and researched by me sarah Steele. music was by joe gould a special thanks to dr michelle haslam for sharing her story with me additional information sources are listed on our website at ltaspod.com Dr. Haslam has created a site at newkadampa that provides further resources for those seeking them, in particular regarding recovery from involvement with the NKT. Thanks again to Audio-Technica, presenting partner for Season 3 of Let's Talk About Sects. If you're in the market for some top-quality audio equipment, be sure to head to audio-technica.com.au to check out some of their stuff. Their range of earphones and headphones is quite ridiculous, from sport to gaming to professional studio, and they're known for some of the best sound around. If you've been personally affected by involvement in a cult or would like to support those who have been, you can find support or donate to Cult Information and Family Support if you're in Australia via www.cifs.org.au and you can find resources outside of Australia with the International Cultic Studies Association via www.icsahome.com. Thanks for listening and hope you'll join me again next month.